So last week we uh, ended a uh, over a year-long sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're going to launch right into another sermon series. It's going to be much shorter uh, these next couple of weeks, and I'm calling the sermon series "And." So to to introduce uh, this series, let's take a field trip to Dairy Queen, an imaginary field trip to Dairy Queen. So we are going through the, the drive through at Dairy Queen, and the voice sounds over the, the, the speaker, um, order whenever you're ready. And uh, we all decide to order a Sunday. I'd like a Sunday, please. And depending on who that person is, Sam and I have observed this at Dairy Queen, you either get one of two responses. You get a very kind, like, what else can I get you? Or what Sam and I had last night, is that it? <laughs> but, but so we order our Sunday, and we say, I'd like a Sunday. And the voice comes back, and it sounds friendly, and the voice says this, caramel or hot fudge. And again, it sounds so polite and kind, but I think it's like the rudest thing they could possibly say. Like, what is this assumption that it's caramel or hot fudge? Why don't they start by saying, would you like caramel and hot fudge? <laughs> because that way, I mean, first, maybe I want caramel and hot fudge, but secondly, then I can say, you know, no, just caramel and feel like I've made a heart-healthy choice. <laughs> and, or, two very different words with profound impact on a sentence. When we come to scripture, we've got to be really careful about our ands and our ors. We can't read an or statement and substitute the word or with the word and. And we can't read an and statement and substitute the word and with or. So let me give you a couple examples of or statements from the, the scripture. Joshua has rallied all of the Israelites, and he says to them, you need to choose this day whom you will serve, the God of our fathers or the God of the Amorites. In other words, Israel, you can't keep playing the fence. You can't keep riding the fence, one foot in both camps. It's one or the other. God is a jealous God. He doesn't want to share his, his worship with anyone else. So Israel choose. As for me and my house, we've chosen, we will serve the Lord. So there's one or statement. Jesus said something similar. You cannot have two masters. Either you will love the one or love the other. Hate the one or hate the other. In the letter to, Revel uh, to the Le Revelations, there was a letter written to the Laodicean church. And this is what Jesus said to them. He said, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were one or the other. But instead, you're lukewarm. You're hot and cold. And so I want to spit you out of my mouth. Wow, 
That's, that's pretty strong. What, it, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that following him is an all-in or all-out proposition. Away with this thinking that we can be like uh, half-hearted in our love for God, that we can be partially committed, partially devoted. No, he's saying, I want all of you. I want your entire heart. Now, does any of do, us do that perfectly? No. But that's what God desires. That's what we're, we're aiming for. So these are or statements that we must not take out the or and put in an and. Like, it's okay to be hot and cold. It's okay to have one master and another master. It's okay to worship one God and, and other gods. No. So we're going to be looking at the and statements, some really critical and statements. Here's a few that we're going to look at. Grace and truth. That's what we're going to look at today. Grace and truth. It's not grace or truth, but it's grace and truth. One does not negate the other. So God is gracious towards us, and he doesn't have to be any less truthful in order for him to be gracious. And God is truthful with us, and he doesn't have to suspend his grace in order to be truthful with us. They go together. In fact, you could make the claim, and I think it's right to make this claim, that neither of those exist apart from the other. Grace is not grace if there is no truth. And when it comes to God, truth is always embedded in grace. So grace and truth, faith and works. Faith and works. It's not faith or works. It's faith and works. They go together. Justice and mercy. God is just and God is merciful. And those things are not in tension with one another. Body and spirit. You are not a body with a spirit. You are not a spirit with a body. You are body and spirit. And when we get to the end of this series, whenever that is, if I'm feeling really courageous, we're going to tackle God's sovereignty and free will. The scripture doesn't say God's sovereignty or free will. It's God's sovereignty and free will. We'll take a look at that. And uh, is a brilliant word. It's a word that I've, I've recently discovered more and more. It, it, it's such a brilliant word. It's such a necessary word. As soon as we forget about the word and, we are going to stray into all kinds of errors. Let me give you a, a couple examples. God is love. We've heard that refrain many times. God is love. And often when you hear it, the, the word that comes in front of the word God is my. My God is a God of love. So let me ask you, is that a true statement? Is that a biblical statement? 100%. Yes, God is love. But if you remove the word and from the equation, you're going to stray into all kinds of errors. Yes, God is love and God is holy. And God is righteous. And God is just. And God 
hates sin. So if you remove all of those things and just plant your flag with God is love, what you in fact have done is create a God. And so it's appropriate to say, my God. And if we're creating gods, what we're really creating is demons. It's not the one true God. So we could take the flip side of that. If you want to just isolate the fact that God hates sin, is that a true statement, God hates sin? Absolutely, God hates sin. But if you remove the and that God loves sinners because there's no one else for him to love but sinners, if you remove the and, then you again have created a a God, which is to say you've created a demon. It's not the one true God. This word and is absolutely critical. So the attributes of God, we're going to talk a lot about the the attributes of God. They exist in perfect harmony with one another. There is no tension in any of the attributes of God. Who God is, he is entirely. So he is a God of grace and he's a God of truth. And it's not sometimes grace and sometimes truth. He is always full of grace. He is always full of truth. He is a God of of justice and a God of mercy. He is a a severe God. He is a, a kind God. All of those things exist together. How about this one? God is good. We love to sing about that. God is good. God is good. Repeat the chorus one more time. God is good. Is that true? Is that biblical? Absolutely. And our good God says, I will not be mocked. I will not be mocked. What you sow, you will reap. So if we take one truth of God and we put all of our eggs into that basket and we overemphasize it, we are going to stray into error. This is true about the attributes of God. It's also true about the teachings of Scripture. So in the Reformed tradition, we are most apt to do this regarding the sovereignty of God. We love the sovereignty of God. In the Reformed tradition, that is, that's the hallmark of Reformed theology. God is sovereign. And, there's an and that follow this, follows this. And God created people and he gave them agency. He gave us agency, which is to say he calls us to make choices. So yes, God is sovereign, God is control, in control, and we have to make choices, and we are responsible for our choices. Those things go together. If you isolate them, one from the other, you're going to fall into error. So that's all introduction today. Don't worry, this sermon will be short after this. I want to pray as we go to the reading of God's Word, and I want to use a prayer uh, from the author A.W. Tozer, the late author A.W. Tozer, who wrote probably my, my favorite go-to book. Uh, it's called The Knowledge of the Holy. And this is how he begins his book with this short prayer. They that don't know you may call upon you as other than you are. And so worship not you, but a creature of their own fancy. Therefore, we pray. Enlighten our minds so that we might know you as you are, so that we may perfectly love you and worthily praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So we're going to turn to John chapter 1, and we're going to just start by looking at the first two verses. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So let's stop there. What an odd way for John to to begin his gospel. Uh, Because we know the rest of the story, we know who the Word was. The Word was Jesus. But instead of just coming right out of the gate and saying, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, Jesus was with God in the beginning, instead John is using this, this strange Greek word, logos, which in English we translate word with a capital W. What John is doing is he's co-opting an idea from Greek philosophy. In Greek philosophy, the logos was thought to be the the central principle that held everything together, kind of the the glue of the universe, the reason or the, the logic of the universe, and it held everything together. In Greek thought, the logos was impersonal, invisible, unknowable, not that different than what Star Wars calls the force. So this is Greek philosophy. And so John is borrowing this idea of the logos being the central principle, that that holds everything together. Remember, if we kept reading John, he'd say, uh, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is the glue that holds everything together. He is the logos with one significant difference from what Greeks had in their mind. They're thinking of an impersonal logos. What John is about to tell us is, no, he's very personable. And what they thought of as was invisible, John's about to tell us that the invisible became visible so that we might know God, so that we might know the logos, so that we might know God. A lot of people today describe themselves as agnostic. Are you familiar with that word? Agnostic. Agnostic is different than than atheist. So an atheist is someone who says there is no God. No God. An agnostic is someone who says we can't possibly know. Like maybe there is a God. Maybe there is not a God. If there is a God, we, we can't know anything about this God. To be an agnostic, you must disregard John's testimony. You must disregard what John is saying. Agnostics today are not that much different than the the Greek philosophers of yesterday who believed, yes, there's this logos, but we can't possibly know anything about it. So what is John's testimony? We're going to skip forward to verse 14. The word, the logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen, we, John is writing, we and and my, my colleagues, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So consider the the claim that John is making. This claim is no less remarkable than the the claim that the tomb was empty. He's saying that that God, the invisible, the eternal one, has made himself known. 
in the person of Jesus Christ, that he actually became one of us, took on flesh, lived among us, and in and through Jesus, we get to know God. God is using Jesus to pull back the curtain and say, here I am. Anyone who has seen Jesus has seen me. All the fullness of the deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. To know Jesus is to know God. So an agnostic says, I can't know. What they ought to say is, I choose not to know. I choose not to know. I choose not to look. Because in the person of Jesus, God has made himself known. Everything required for us is, is there for us in Jesus Christ. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, handed down to us. Eyewitnesses who lived with Jesus, who observed him, who watched him, who wrote down everything they experienced. They saw him when he went up the mountain and transfigured in appearance before them. They saw him in a boat say a few words, quiet, be still, and calm a sea. They saw him rub dirt on a blind man's eyes, and suddenly that blind man could see. They saw him be crucified. They saw him after he rose from the dead. They watched as he ascended up to be with the Father. You can't be an agnostic without denying this testimony. If you're an agnostic, you're saying, I don't believe your testimony. I don't believe your eyewitness testimony, John. So John testifies, we've seen his glory. The word became flesh. And notice the first thing that he describes, how he describes God. He describes what they've seen. He came from the Father full of grace and truth. So we're going to continue reading. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but Mr. and Mrs. Agnostic. God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And what did he reveal? The first thing he revealed was grace and truth. Uh, in our very limited understanding, our human way of looking at it, it seems like those two words are in tension with one another. Like, you can't be full of grace and be full of truth. To do one, you've got to suspend the other. That's the way we, we kind of think of it. Like, it's sometimes maybe 100% grace and 0% truth, or maybe it's like a 50-50 relationship. No, Jesus came full of grace and full of truth, and there is no tension in those two attributes because who God is, he always is, and he is entirely. So there is never a time when God is not full of grace. There is never a time when God is not full of truth. When God gives us grace, he does to bring us further into the truth. And when God shares with us truth, it's always in the spirit of grace. So that, that's all pretty philosophical. 
So to, to bring that into kind of the practical, to help us grasp that, we need to look at a couple case studies. So in just a couple chapters, in John chapter 4, we get this beautiful case study. Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and he comes to a well. And there's a woman who has come to the well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, all by herself to, to gather water. And the question that we as readers want to know is, what is Je- how is Jesus going to interact with this woman? Because what Jesus knows is that this woman has a wreck of a life. Like things have fallen apart in her life. She's had five husbands, five failed marriages, and she's currently living with someone who's not her husband. And Jesus knows all of this. And so the question is, is he going to interact with her in a posture of grace or a posture of truth? And notice I'm using the word or. I should be using the word and. He's going to show us that, that, that grace and truth can, can work together. So there she is at, at the well. He engages her. He, he's kind to her. He breaks all kinds of societal norms. In, uh, first having a conversation with a Samaritan and then a man with a woman. Uh, so he engages her. He treats her with dignity. But then he shines a light on what's going on in her life. He, he knows that she's had five failed marriages and that she's currently living with someone. If Jesus just treated this woman with, with truth, what would that have looked like? Well, my guess is he probably wouldn't have interacted with her at all. He would have come there, he would have let her do her thing, and then when she walked away, he might have thought to himself, how sad. How sad uh, the way that she's li- living her life. Or maybe he would have engaged her and he would have let her know, you know, the thing that you're doing right now, it's wrong. You just need to know that it's, it's wrong if it was all truth. What if it was all grace? What if Jesus treated her with all grace? Well, he, uh, he would have been nice to her. He would have smiled. He would have engaged in a little chit-chat maybe about the, the weather. And when the woman finally left the well, he might have quietly thought to himself, what a pity. What a pity. And the woman would have returned to her town and maybe told a friend or two about the nice man that she met at the well. But her life wouldn't have been changed. What we see in Scripture is that grace and truth is this powerful, transformative force. When used together, grace and truth changes lives. And so, He treats her with grace and truth, and what does she do? She runs back to town, and she says to everyone, come see this man who told me everything that I ever did. Think about that. Does that that thought uh, scare you at all? Someone who who knows everything that you ever did? For me, thinking about someone telling me everything that I ever did, it would be the most humiliating shameful experience of my life. Like that is a truth bomb that I don't think I could survive. And yet Jesus does this with her and and she is so moved by it because of his grace that she goes and tells others and she wants them to come experience him as well. Truth, when coupled with grace, doesn't have to be a bomb. Doesn't have to be a truth bomb. 
In fact, God's word calls grace and truth a kiss on the lips. When, when people are gracious to us, when they're truthful, that is, that's a gift that they're giving us. There's another example, Jonah. You know the story well. The, the Ninevites are wicked people. And God has decided, I, I want to confront the Ninevites about their wickedness. That's truth. And he decides to send Jonah, go to the, the Ninevites and confront them about their wickedness. Jonah hates the Ninevites. You would think he would be all too happy to do this. I'll go confront them about their wickedness. But instead, he runs the other direction. Why does Jonah run the other direction? It's because he knows God. He knows that although God is going to turn the flashlight on and, and expose truth about wickedness, he also knows his gracious heart. He knows that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in love. He's gracious, he's compassionate, and if they repent, God might forgive them. And Jonah doesn't want to have anything to do with that, so he runs in the opposite direction. That doesn't work out so well. After he gets swallowed by a fish and spit back out, he says, all right, I'm going to go. I'll go to the Ninevites. And sure enough, he confronts them with the truth, and they repent, and God is, is gracious. Truth and grace working together. So we are called to follow Christ, which means we are called to walk in grace and truth. If God can do it, we can do it. We have to put away this idea that if I'm going to be gracious, I, I can't be truthful. And if I'm going to be truthful, I, I can't be gracious. You can be gracious and you can be truthful. In fact, that's what changes people's lives. That's where the power is, grace and truth together. I remember a conversation I had uh, when I was about 25 year old, years old with someone who confronted me about, uh, I didn't return a phone call, and, and I had a pattern of not returning phone calls, and, and this person confronted me and, and shared the impact of, of my failure to return phone calls in his life, and that is like a truth bomb but it was the most gracious truth bomb I've ever, ever received. Like he was telling me this because he loved me and, and he wanted to see this, this behavior change in me. Grace and truth together. We all need to know ourselves. We need to be self-aware because most of us default one way or the other. Most of us are by nature like we're gonna default towards the grace side or we're gonna default towards the truth side. And if we default towards the grace side, you know, we, we smile, we affirm, we go along to, to get along. We maybe don't like to talk about right and wrong that much. We accept people. We're very accepting. We accept them as they are, but we're never a part of helping them become who they're called to be. Grace people are often concerned about being liked. We want others to feel loved. Some of us default more towards truth. Truth people are, are outspoken about right and wrong. They're people with strong convictions, and they make their convictions known. There's a bit of an edge to them. Truth people can be quick to judge, slow to have compassion. Truth people are concerned about being right. They want others to see it as they see it. 
If you isolate one from the other, grace from truth or truth from grace, you descend into all kinds of things that are not godly and not attractive. Grace needs truth. Truth needs grace. So what is the greatest case study of this? It's the cross. The cross is the greatest example of grace and truth kissing one another. Grace and truth meet at the cross. So, so what does the, the cross say? Well, it says the truth. It says my sins are worse than I could possibly imagine. That, that, that I'm actually deserving of death because of my sins. That is the hard truth. But it's coupled with, with grace that God loved me so much that he took upon himself my sins. He died in my place. The cross is the biggest truth bomb, grace bomb that has ever existed. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because of this grace, because of this truth. Join me as we pray. Lord, uh, I confess as I preach this, I'm thinking it's so easy to talk about, and yet in the, the heat of real relationships, it's so hard to, to live out. And so, Lord, we, we call on you uh, to shine in us and shine through us. Lord, we pray that we would be uh, people full of grace and full of truth. We pray most of all that we would reflect you, that in seeing us, people would see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.